Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. From Commando.com, this is Commando On Demand, where we talk to the industry movers and shakers to keep you up to date on everything digital. We'll get started in a moment, but first, we'd like to recognize and thank our partners who help make these Commando On Demand podcasts possible. Hey guys, it's Mike James in for Kim Commando again. Now, a lot of us who listen to Commando On Demand grew up in a time when music wasn't very portable. We remember we had vinyl records and cassette tapes and eight-track players, but the so-called portable players were big, bulky, and required a power outlet or even batteries that didn't last very long. The idea of making music portable is nothing new. In fact, in 1954, a company called Industrial Development Engineering Associates, or IDEA, IDEA, bright idea for a company, released the first ever portable transistor radio for consumers. Now, for its time, it was small. It was about the size of today's smartphone, but a little thicker. And it was a great advancement for the music industry. It sold, now get this, it was about $50 for a radio, which is about 320 in today's dollars. Now keep in mind that transistor radio depended on radio frequencies that were picked up by antennas. If you were on the move, you were constantly adjusting your antenna. More than 10 years later, Philips released the first ever cassette tape. If you're over 40, you certainly remember how much they dominated the music stores and industry for the next 20 years. Here's a fun fact. Cassettes weren't initially intended for music lovers. They were sold to college students who could record their classes. Now, of course, we can't talk about cassette tapes without mentioning at least the Sony Walkman. First released in 1979, now, I remember being fascinated with the Sony Walkman. Of course, I was too poor to afford one. Barely bigger than a cassette tape in and of itself, Walkman sold millions of units and averaged around $274 in today's money. And here's another bit of trivia for you. What was the final year that any car manufacturer included a cassette player? Now, bonus points if you can name the make and model. We'll give you the answer after this message from our partners at Simply Safe. Simply Safe is a fantastic security system. With Simply Safe, there's never any hidden fees or long-term contracts, and because they want everybody to feel safe in their homes, Simply Safe prices are always honest and fair. Round-the-clock professional monitoring will bring the police anytime there's even the slightest hint of a problem. And there are six monitoring centers across the country, which means nothing, not even earthquakes, floods, or tornadoes will interrupt your protection. Simply Safe is built for the unexpected, just loaded with safe it keeps working even during local power and Wi-Fi outages. Even if a burglar smashes your keypad, the police will be on their way. Plus, the system is so easy to use. It's incredibly intuitive, and it takes only minutes to set up in your home. Just open the box, plug it in, no drilling, no wires. Order your Simply Safe system right now at simplysafekim.com. That's simplysafekim.com. 
All right. So before the break, we asked you what was the final year that any car manufacturer included a cassette deck? Well, according to the New York Times, it was the Lexus SC430 in 2010, believe it or not. Compact discs, of course, replaced the cassette tape. They first showed up for music lovers in the early 1980s, and we loved them because the sound quality was better and they were more durable than the cassette. Oh, quick little mystery fact that I know about the CD. The very first mass-produced CD was Glass Houses by Billy Joel, and I believe it was 1978 or 79. Now, while the cassette tape and compact disc were bringing music to our ears, another technology was being developed in Germany around that same time. The MP3 got its start in 1982 in Germany. A PhD student, Karlitz Brandenburg, was searching for a thesis topic when one of his professors suggested he work on a way to transmit music over digital phone lines. In fact, at that time, digital processing of media signals already was a research topic and was in use for some applications. People were already using it uh, to get more phone calls over the lines, and people were actively doing research on coding of pictures and video. Why couldn't we transfer audio files over radio waves when voices could be clearly transmitted over phone calls? Well, the problem was file compression. Brandenburg was faced with the challenging task of compressing audio files without ruining their quality, and this took years to perfect. The reason this took so long is because of the many layers of music. You have the instruments, the voice, and other sounds that have to come together to create music for the human ear. Brandenburg explained how folk singer Susan Vega's song, Tom's Diner, remember this song? (laughs) Believe it or not, this song helped him perfect the MP3 player sound in 1987. Vega's vocal nuances in the a cappella rendition of Tom's Diner meant that his algorithm for condensing the audio file had to be good at picking out which parts of the sound could be discarded without ruining the listener's experience. So the work began. Brandenburg went on to do research at AT AT&T Bell Labs. Now, this work would provide to be the basis for all modern audio compression systems. But Brandenburg wasn't the only one interested in small, portable audio files around the same time. Around that time, in the late 1970s and early 80s, British scientist Kane Kramer and his friend James Campbell came up with the idea for a portable music player the size of a cigarette pack. The system, called IXI, had a display screen and buttons for four-way navigation. Now, does that sound familiar? Right, kind of like what became the iPod decades later. But at that time, it was merely Kramer's vision for a way to combat counterfeit music. He foresaw a market for a high-quality music player that would benefit music lovers and record companies. The surprising thing about his invention wasn't the player itself, though, but the distribution network behind it. This network was similar to in today's music distribution channels like iTunes. But remember, this was 1979. There was no Internet. Kramer said musical content could be stored on a central server and then sent out via telephone line. Customers would then have to take their players to a store where their favorite songs would be saved to a removable chip, 
which would be placed inside a portable music player. But before he could make his portable music player and create the world he predicted so clearly, Kramer knew he would have to master the art of digital sound. So he began with a digital music player. In 1981, I was eventually ready after all of the preparation work, research work, testing and everything else to apply for the uh, world patents. And by 1982, I'd uh, sold off 10% of my company to raise £150,000. It's quite a lot of money back in 30, whatever, five years ago, roughly. Um, and, uh, and then in, by the end of 1982, built the world's first solid-state digital audio recorder player. And it was just an amazing, um, it was an amazing device. It was an amazing time. Um, when I built the first one, it had a 19-inch, it was 19-inch rack-mounted um, unit about this tall, and it, it held three cartridges, and each cartridge could play 10 minutes of that, that time. 10 minutes of stereo was the largest cartridge that we were able to make, which was 20 minutes of mono. And with three cartridges, this would give you an hour of mono. And this was actually a professional recording machine initially, because although the actual pocket-sized digital audio player was my end game, I realised that of course, nobody had any digital music. So in order to actually create an industry around digital music, first of all, you had to be able to digitally master. So the very first machine which I made, which, which actually went on sale at the APRS show, was a, um, a six-track recording device. So if you imagine you've got an hour of potential recording of a single track, you could configure that to be across the six tracks so you could multi-track record. Now you could plug an unlimited amount of these machines together. So if you plugged four machines together, it would give you a synchronized 24-track recorder, solid state with no moving parts. And of course, unlike the then medium, which was tape, tape, um, uh, obviously the tape would run through the transport. And if you record a little bit on one track and you didn't record all the other tracks, it was sort of wasted. But of course, with digital, you can... Uh, have a timeline and you can record little bits of memory in each track on each timeline and it doesn't use all of the memory. So during the time that you're not having recording on any particular tracks, that isn't wasted because obviously it's a, it's a random access memory and you can select any part of that memory inside and, and put it in order. Once he created that first music player, however, he began to fathom what might happen if he made a digital distribution format that worked with leading record companies. So I thought, I know, if we could have a big machine and this machine sat somewhere controlled by someone within the industry, like the Performing Rights Society or someone like this, and that had all the, uh, 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 the songs on it, then if inside the shops, the retailers, they have um, a similar machine to a franking machine with the songs on it, people could, they could actually... Um, sell an almost unlimited amount of um, of records. I, another little bit I must just fill in. I did some research in 1980 with Music Week, who compiled the charts, and I found out, I asked this question, of the top 30, what proportion of the records and tapes does it represent? And they said the top 30 represents, after the research, 90% of all records and tapes sold. So I thought, well, if I could just get the top 30 into a record shop, in a machine, maybe on a big reel-to-reel tape that could record onto cassettes, but sealed so they can't get into it, they could have an unlimited amount of cassettes, and I can get onto that cassette um, as much 
um, like 90% of everyone that walks through the door, I can, we can serve them. That's a much better percentage than at the minute, minute. Then I had the idea that we could send from that machine just the accounting information by telephone line back to central database, so all the shops. So it would be known from the record company exactly when and how many were selling. And then I thought, um, well, if I'm going to send the digital data back with the numbers, maybe I could send a new song overnight, because obviously things are slow then, a new song overnight and top up new songs into this machine during the week. Mm-hmm. And so the idea was that I would send it digital down the telephone line into this machine in the shop, and then you would convert it back into analog and you record it onto a tape. Yes. And then I thought, why do I want to go from digital back to analog? Why don't I have a digital audio player and play it in digital? Mm-hmm. And it won't lose any quality and it can be passed around. Yeah. And the digital audio player was born. And my first investor was Paul McCartney. So Kane Kramer experimented with the capabilities of digital distribution. Now, although Kramer has been credited as the inventor of the digital audio player because of a series of missteps involving a lapse patent and $320,000, his vision never came to fruition for him. Engineers in Germany, meanwhile, continued cracking away at MP3 technology. In the late 80s, the Fraunhofer Institute in Germany began research to perfect condensed audio files. The International Organization of Standardization, or ISO, created the Moving Pictures Experts Group, or MPEG, MPEG. Together, Brandenburg and MP3 strive to create a quality sound file that was small enough to easily be transported. Now, that turning point finally came. Remember, a cappella version of Vega's Tom's Diner? I mentioned that earlier. Brandenburg had finally refined the condensed audio file after working with the song over a thousand times. Now, you can probably imagine it was always stuck in his head. I think that was stuck in everybody's head throughout the 80s and a good portion of the 90s. Now, in 1989, Fraunhofer Institute received a German patent that became the standard format for compressing audio. In 1993, this MPEG-1 standard was published. The following year, MPEG-2 was developed and published. It stated that the technology offered full CD-quality audio. But although the technology for an MP3 player existed in the early 90s, American companies were too worried about being sued by the music industry to create a portable player of their own. Sony had just bought Columbia Records, so they weren't going to pioneer the new market. The only company bold enough to take the task of creating the first portable MP3 player was Sahan Information Systems, which was a Korean company. They were an offshoot of Samsung. Now, before we get into that first MP3 device, however, I want to remind you that the 1990s also gave birth to the Internet. Though MP3's official launch in 1995 didn't meet widespread popularity due to the widespread use of CDs, the Internet gave the audio world the push it needed. How? Well, more on that after a quick message from the folks who make these podcasts possible. All right, back to the fascinating MP3 player. Shortly after Brandenburg's audio encoding software was patented, it hit the web. There, early internet pirates replicated the software, and before long, it was possible for anyone to rip CDs on their computers and share music files with the world. Maybe you remember creating playlists of free music on the popular site LimeWire. 
A more well-known illegal music downloading site was Napster. This changed everything, as this New York Times story says. College students are making good use of the Internet. The latest software makes it a bit too easy for students to access their favorite tune. In the fall of 1998, at Northeastern University, freshman Sean Fanning began developing his idea for a site called Napster, named after an online alias he used. He dropped out of school shortly thereafter to focus on the site. Sean partnered with his friend Sean Parker, and the rest was history. In November 1998, Sean logged onto an online think tank called WooWoo, that's W-0-0-W-0-0, where he often communicated with young people like him. He sought input for an idea, a global internet community with access to every music file everywhere. Nothing like it existed. There were no large-scale internet communities, and to transfer even a single music file took hours, often without success. Well, Sean knew he could tackle that problem. It took him six months to code the application. He uploaded it to the Internet, called it Napster, and wham, it was one of the first large-scale peer-to-peer file-sharing programs. It allowed users to access music files shared on the hard drives of fellow Napster users. 40,000 users initially signed on to Napster, And at its peak in 2001, it had about 70 million registered users, according to the New York Times. The music industry didn't view the online platform the same way the programmers did. Napster was eating into their profits. They were pulling their hair out and spending all kinds of money on every lawyer that they could get their hands on to stop the whole thing. Steve Knopper, contributing editor for Rolling Stone, tells the New York Times that the CD industry had been booming when Napster came out. The CD boom was from 84 to 2000. You actually had to drive your car to the Tower Records and buy a CD for $18 to get the one song you liked. And so that was a good model. It made the industry tons and tons of cash. Napster's co-founder, Sean Parker, defended his platform, saying the music industry wasn't offering what the public wanted, easy access to downloadable music. But the music industry was stuck in retail storefronts. It didn't offer online options, so Internet users took it on themselves to pioneer sharing music. Consumers turn to piracy, by and large, when they can't get the product through legitimate channels. So there needed to be a legitimate market offering coming from the record labels, and they couldn't get their act together for years to put that in the market. It was frustrating to watch this long, deleterious collapse of the indust- of an industry that was producing something that I loved so much. That was never our intention. We never wanted to see that happen. By 1999, Napster offered an easy worldwide file sharing service. The MP3 became the undisputed standard for online music. But while the MP3 grew online, portable music players were still in their infancy. The first portable MP3 player was the MP Man, echoing the moniker made famous by Sony's Walkman and Discman. MP Man launched in 1998 by a South Korean company and held 32 or 64 megabytes of memory. That's about 6 to 12 songs. In today's money, its cost was around $600. So although it was a pioneering device, the widespread response was underwhelming. People didn't understand why they needed an MP man when they could listen to music 
on CD players or cassettes. And while Napster was changing that perception, it would be another few years before innovation took hold and the portable MP3 player gained favor. A few months after the MP Man was released, another company took a stab at the portable MP3 device. The Diamond Rio PNP300 became the latest consumer MP3 player. Now, the Recording Industry Association of America sued the Diamond Company, but lost because it couldn't prove that these devices were being used for anything other than personal use. And that's the key. The devices themselves weren't the problem. The websites that shared the music were the problem. And so began Napster's notorious battle against the music industry. Hank Berry, a lawyer, came onto the Napster case, and here's what he told the New York Times. We were trying to negotiate with the labels. We were trying to fight the court case, and we were trying to keep the system working all at the same time. We had a limited amount of time to make that happen, and we just didn't get that done within the period of time that we, that we had. After over a year of legal battles, the case was finally settled. The free music service run by Napster was ordered to stop the music. In July of 2001, the internet startup, which at its peak had over 70 million users, had shut down. But that wasn't the end for online illegal downloading software. The record company troubles had really just begun. A flurry of new downloading services took the place of Napster. Sony and Universal Music Group's Avi Galutin explains to the then New York Times why Napster was unstoppable. We accurately estimated that the courts would say, you just don't have the right to give away all this stuff. And so we were perhaps a little smug and confident in the belief that the courts would say it's not that and people would stop doing it. We didn't really factor in the consumer adoption, the youthful lack of respect for copyright, and the anonymity would combine to make it pretty unstoppable as a model. Record labels, who were fearful about their loss of sales, upped the stakes and sued almost 20,000 people for using illegal music downloading software. But CD sales continued to plummet. That was when Steve Jobs entered the picture. He offered the music industry an opportunity to have their own online distribution center to quell the online piracy that was taking money away from the music industry. Albi Galutin broke down this ultimatum the music industry was faced with. You had only two choices. Either you don't do a deal with Steve, in which case people continue to just email the MP3s to their friends, or you do a business with him and he has a store and then you can sell things. They did finally accept Jobs' offer and Jobs created iTunes. So how did Jobs get ahead of the industry and present that offer to the music industry? Well, around 2000, Apple realized it had a large gap in its digital hub strategy when it came to music. And to fill that gap, Apple bought the rights to SoundJam MP, which was a popular Mac MP3 player application, and hired three of its creators to work at Apple and further develop the program. The team simplified SoundJam and created CD-burning features to create iTunes, which was officially launched in January of 2001. The first iPod was released in October of that same year. Here is the famous Steve Jobs' first presentation on the iPod. What is iPod? iPod 
is an MP3 music player, has CD quality music, and it plays all of the popular open formats of digital music, MP3, MP3 variable bitrate, uh, WAV, and AIFF. But the biggest thing about iPod is it holds a thousand songs. Now, this is a quantum leap because it's your, for most people, it's their entire music library. This is huge. How many times have you gone on the road with a CD player and said, oh, God, the CD, I didn't bring the CD I wanted to listen to? To have your whole music library with you at all times is a quantum leap in listening to music. Now, this device solved two of the biggest problems with MP3 players the memory storage, and the user interface problem. Before the iPod, MP3 players would have had about 90 minutes worth of songs. The iPod gave them 1,000 songs. Before the iPod, people that used MP3 players also had to click through songs one by one. If you had 1,000 songs on your MP3 player and wanted to find a specific one, forget about it. The iPod threw out that idea and introduced a click wheel with built-in acceleration scrolling. This, combined with industry design and large memory, made the iPod a huge hit. Now today, even the iPod has fallen by the wayside. The MP3 player has become another device lost to the success of smartphones. In 2017, Apple announced it was finally discontinuing its iPod Shuffle and Nano. So where are the other MP3 pioneers today? Well, the Fraunhofer Institute finally released its patent, declining to renew the intellectual property and terminating its license program. Today, Professor Brandenburg is still referred to as the father of the MP3 and leads the Electronic Media Technology Lab at the University of Ilmeno. What about Kane Kramer, the guy who envisioned file sharing taking over record store purchases? Well, he ended up working as a furniture salesperson and says Apple credits him for being an early inventor of the iPod, although he never did receive any money for it. So where do we go from here? Well, the MP3 is going to be in podcasts everywhere. Think about it. You're listening to podcasts, and podcasts are a way to learn about the things that you really, really want to know about. That's why we really appreciate you listening to this Commando On Demand podcast. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and like so you'll get these delivered to you every single day, even while you're sleeping. Tell your friends about us. We appreciate that. That helps more people find us. Thanks for listening. And thanks to Kim for letting me sit in today. Appreciate it. And we'll see you next time.